Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Sometimes people ask me if I've watched that Kevin Spacey program, House of Cards, and what I say to them is that I actually find that program more believable having been in the job than I would have if I had never been in the job. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a great episode today. I have Senator Michael Bennett on. Uh, Michael Bennett is the senator from Colorado. He got to the Senate in an unusual way. He was appointed after being superintendent of the Denver school system when Ken Salazar, his predecessor, joined the Obama administration. So he's a bit of an accidental senator. I mean, he's won his some elections now in the aftermath, but but he came in without a very long career in elected politics. And over the past couple of years, I, I've talked with him occasionally, and there's a lot less bullshit with him when talking about Congress than there is with a lot of members of the institution. He's pretty clear-eyed about it. This is a moment when things are not great in Congress. This is not a moment when the two sides trust each other. It is not a moment when things seem to be working, when things are passing. The healthcare process that ended or seems to have ended when John McCain cast the final vote against Mitch McConnell's healthcare bill, that was not how this should have worked. I have not talked to anybody who thinks that is how this should have worked. So I wanted to, to speak with Senator Bennett uh, and ask him the questions that I have about why the Senate doesn't work better, why the members of the Senate who privately, every single one of them will tell you how upset they are, how disappointed they are, how this isn't what they're here to do, how this isn't who they meant to be, how this isn't what their voters want. And yet they don't do anything about it. They don't fix it. They don't stand up for it. They don't step away from leadership on it. This is a conversation about why, a conversation about why a place with some good people, not all, but some good people, doesn't work a bit better. We talk about the role of money. We talk about the role of leadership. We talk about the role of partisanship, of journalism, of the rules. And Senator Bennett is pretty honest on this. I think if you want to understand what it feels like to be in the Senate right now, this is a conversation you should listen to. I want to make one other note on him. One reason I chose him for this discussion or wanted him on for this discussion is that when you talk to Republicans and Democrats, both of them speak very highly of Bennett. He's somebody who's quite respected by both sides. He's able to work with both sides. So what you're hearing here is someone who is one of the better members of the Senate at working across the aisle, talking to you about how nothing here seems to work at all. And, and I would take that pretty seriously. 
Uh, as always, a couple quick plugs. Please share the show, rate it on iTunes, send it to your friends, send it on email, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you send your shows. Uh, it's how we grow. I am grateful for it. Please continue to email me your show feedback and your guest suggestions at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, that is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. You should be checking out our other podcasts, The Weeds on Policy, Worldly on Foreign Affairs, and I Think You're Interesting, which is cultural interviews by Todd Vanderwerf, all of them also on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, all that said, without further ado, here is Senator Michael Bennett. Senator Michael Bennett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you become a senator? In the most accidental <laughs> way possible. I was had a lifetime outside of politics. And then was, when Ken Salazar became Interior Secretary, Bill Ritter, who was our governor at the time, had to fill a vacancy. And much to my surprise, and certainly to the surprise of a lot of people in Colorado, he appointed me to the seat. In fact, there was a headline that said, like, Michael Bennett fills Senate seat, and, and it said, what the F, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, which I think captured the view of a lot of people at the time. How, how did you end up being the person chosen? I think that what I, the way, I, I mean, you'd have to ask Governor Ritter that, but the way I've come to think about it is that when you are up for one of these jobs, there are a million tumblers in the lock. And most of those tumblers have nothing to do with you. And they all have to fall in exactly the same sequence uh, in order for you to be selected. And I think that's what happened to me. I think that he also, he had come, I think he would say this, and seen a um, kind of a town hall meeting that I had done. That's not what the format was. But when we were rolling out something when I was the superintendent of schools in Denver called the Denver Plan, which was our reform plan, and I was almost literally being beaten to death by parents at a high school over the additional graduation requirements that we were creating as part of the Denver plan. And those can be very hot and ugly conversations. And Bill Ritter was just accidentally there and he saw it and I know he never forgot it. Uh, that, that's interesting. So did you, before you became senator, did you have ambitions to enter elected politics? I, from time to time in my life, I was interested in it. My father had worked as a staff person on Capitol Hill for a long time, but um, I believed I, absolutely that moving to Colorado foreclosed that possibility for me. And then, and I have friends who would attest to this, uh, when I took the job of being a school superintendent, every person I knew who, who thought that maybe someday I should run for office said to me that that would be the end of my career and certainly the end of any political career. And I believe that to be true as well. The reason I ask that is that, so so we've talked on and off for a couple of years, and unlike a lot of people who get here through more traditional means and through climbing a ladder of different elected uh, positions, you've had a... Checkered. You're a little bit more jaded about the Senate than most people in it who I speak to. <laughs> it, it feels to me like you came here and looked around. And it wasn't quite what you expected it to be. It definitely wasn't what I expected it to be. Sometimes people ask me if I've watched that Kevin Spacey program, House of Cards, and they say, is it really like House of Cards? And what I say to them is that I actually find that program more believable having been in the job than I would have if I had never been in the job. Is that true? No, it's true. It's not about murders but or any of that kind of stuff. Well, that's what you would say. That is what I would say. I'm not going to tell you the truth. We're on the radio, but the sociopathic quality of this place at times and some of the folks here, 
that's real. And I actually think he does a pretty good job of capturing that. You know, one of the things I feel very lucky about is that I spent my life outside of politics before I got here. So I was a, I was in business for a while. This is shortcutting it, but I was in business for a while and I was a school superintendent for a while. And I feel very fortunate to have the chance to bring some of that, what I learned in those jobs to the debates that we have. You mentioned that a lot of folks here have spent their whole life running for political office. And I don't denigrate that experience. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about the country. You learn a lot about the people you're trying to represent when you run for office. But it's not the only experience that's valuable. And I think the fact that we're this place is full of people that have been doing that all their lives, among other things, makes it hard for people to reach compromise. I want to go back to the way you described House of Cards, what it got right. Because it's a pretty profound statement for a sitting U.S. senator to say that how, what House of Cards gets right is a sociopathic quality of people working in politics. Yeah. There's a, a gloss on politics. It's one that I sometimes describe to, which is that it's full of good people trapped in a bad system. It's full of people trying to do right, but, you know, there are these outside groups and there's money and there's campaign finance and people end up doing wrong almost in spite of themselves. And you're saying that, no, that well, it was at least partially your experience. You came in here and people were not motivated maybe by what you'd hoped. There are, there, like any human enterprise, there are good people. There are what one would think of as good people and bad people. I think that the business of politics revs up the sociopathic qualities that I'm thinking about. I mean, think about it. In every other walk of life, or at least the ones that I've been part of, you're part of an enterprise that requires the assistance of other people or the cooperation or collaboration of other people to actually accomplish something, whether you're in business or whether you're working in local government. That's, and that's the standard to which you're held, whether you're in business or local government. People do not come after a city council meeting and say, how obstreperous were you or how successful were you in, you know, once again, defeating any attempt at progress. I mean, I've seen that up close working in Denver in the city and county in the superintendent's office. Here you can make a career out of that. You can make a career out of going on the cable television at night and shooting your mouth off about how terrible everybody is on the other side and and never accomplishing anything while the country drifts. And part of that also is, well, I'll stop there. But I mean, I do think that's, and I, and I also think there's a weirdness about these political offices that are about the people that inhabit them. They're, the way I think about the folks that are here is they kind of divide it into two categories. One, One's a group of people who, really understand that the job is about the people they represent and are here every day trying to strive to make things better for the people they represent. And I think there's another group of people um, for whom the job's about them let me and ask their you, ambition. Let me ask you about how you cut those two groups of people, though, because that is— We're to not going to name names. No, 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 I understand. <laughs> that is to some degree my impression of members of, of Congress, too, except for the fact that when you end up looking at how people vote— they virtually all vote the same way. Yeah. And there is this wide profusion of differences yeah. between individual members of Congress, individual senators. Yeah. And then you look at what happens at the end of the day on a bill. And if you were trying to run some kind of algorithm where you were projecting votes based on how decent of a person or how much you thought that person thought about their constituents, it would be very hard yeah. Yeah. to work backwards and find and I And what I, th I, we may have a disagreement about this, but I believe that that is not a reflection of partisanship. I believe it's a reflection of the complete lack of imagination our legislative process has right now. So when you think about the bills that actually get a vote on the floor, 
or the nominations that actually get on a vote on the floor. This is stuff that's often cooked up, as the majority leader has said in the past, in the majority leader's office, he was complaining then about Harry Reid, and then brought to the floor. It's the end state. It's the end state. Compare that to an outlier bill, which was the immigration bill that I worked on as part of the Gang of Eight with John McCain, Jeff Flake, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, Chuck Schumer, Dick Durbin, and Bob Menendez. We worked on the bill for seven months. We committed to each other that throughout the committee process, we would support the bill and vote against things that were against our views of the world. It finally got to the floor and we did the same thing. I think that's what ha- used to happen around this place and it doesn't happen anymore. The Civil Rights Act I learned the other day was introduced, I was told, by the minority leader of the Senate on the floor. That would never happen today. So I think that the, the separation that you see in the votes is a reflection of the weakness of our legislative process. If we had bills that originated in committees, were worked on in committees, where people had to compromise over time, to get to a result, I think you'd see more people on the floor defending those bills and you'd see less partisanship in the votes. So here's what, this is a great bridge to a conversation that I very much want to make sure we have here. There is no member of the Senate who I've spoken to in the last two years who has not echoed that exact sentiment, who has not said leadership controls everything, the way they control things ends up pushing things in a more partisan direction, the way this place works is not the way it used to work and for the worse. So why don't people change it? Why I, there are not more gang of eights or gang of sixes? Why did not six Democrats and six Republicans could have banded together and just said, nope, we're doing a bipartisan health care process. That is the only thing we're doing. You would think that Mitch McConnell and before him, Harry Reid had sorcery. What, what is the stick that is keeping people so in line. I wish I could tell you that it was something profound uh, because I don't think it is profound. I, I think that there's a, a lack of content and a lack of conviction about a lot of what we're doing. Part of it's the rush schedule. Part of it's the fundraising demands. Part of it's the, the constant cycle of campaigning, all of which has added up to a place where I think we've gotten to a spot. And this is what we do have to change. And it is going to require six Democrats and six Republicans or four and four, like in the case of the immigration bill, um, to come together. We've gotten to a point where the ratio of politics to getting stuff done is like today, 95% to 5%. You know, it's the most infelicitous ratio probably in the history of the Congress. We have to change that. And I actually think in the wake of the failure on health care last week, that we have the chance to come together on health care in that way, too, in a, in a bipartisan way to, to address issues that the American people have with our health care system. And we should. We so should. I, I'm gonna there, hold... There's no good excuse. So, but why does it happen? I mean, so if happen? a year from now we're sitting here, or we're not sitting here, but this has yeah. not come to pass, we've not yeah. seen a, a turn. The, the reason I'm asking this question this way is that U.S. senators are powerful people. They have risen up. They've accomplished extraordinary things. They have gotten into this position well, that almost nobody ever gets to. They, when they go home, there are crowds for them. They get to wear a pin. They get to, to you know, <laughs> use a special elevator in like the fanciest building in the United States of America. And then they act powerless. Right. And I have been working literally for years to try to understand this. Yeah. And what you said is that there's no good explanation, but there has to be a well, good explanation. Well, so let me, let me come at it in a different yeah. way. Um, well, the, I think part of the explanation is if you look at who's here now, there's a lot of 
discussion about whether we should have term limits and all that, or there used to be. And the reality is it took me a term to go from the bottom 50 to the top 50 in terms of membership. In seniority, you in mean? Seniority. seniority. In seniority. I was 99th when I got here. And in one term, I, I, I was in the 50s. And that doesn't matter much in terms of seniority, but it is an illustration of the lack of historical knowledge that's here anymore. I counted up the other day from starting at the top and just cutting it off at sort of an arbitrary point. Where was the last senator? Who was the last senator who was here when the Senate functioned as the Senate used to function? And I cut it off at about 30. And we could have an argument between 25 and 30 as to whether the person is the right person. But it's clearly not somebody between 30 and 35. When, when did you put that date? I can't remember, but it was probably four years before I got here. And I got here in 09. So you're so saying the somewhere... Senate functioned sort of roughly correctly before 06. Yeah, somewhere in there. And what that means is 70 of us have never been in a functioning Senate. And have never been in a Senate that worked from Monday to Friday, have never been in a Senate that used to work on Saturday, which in the 1960s, the Senate did, have never been in a Senate where the committee chairs were the leaders. And, and none of this is excuse making. It's an observation. I will say, I mean, the first term I was here, the jobs changed since the advent of Donald Trump. But the first six years I was here, the record I wanted to compile for my reelection was a record of bipartisanship. And I was able to go home and talk about the Gang of Eight on Immigration, to talk about the Elementary and Secondary School Act that Lamar Alexander very generously helped him rewrite with the other committee members in the Health Committee, to talk about the work I did with Richard Burr to reform the Food and Drug Administration. So there are things you can do. I mean, there are things you can do. But the big things, health care, an, uh, an infrastructure bill, those those have eluded us in the time that I've been. Let's here. talk about the dynamics climate, of by the way, climate. Another one. Let's talk about and the dynamics of big. No, just please. one other observation yeah. about all this. It's also not a fair fight, and this is one of the things that I've had a hard time getting across to people, or maybe it's because I don't understand it myself. But when you when you have come to Washington, and you think your job is to dismantle the federal government. The more dysfunction that happens here and the lower you can drive the approval ratings of the Congress, the more it suits your purposes. So when you're having a debt ceiling conversation, when you're talking about shutting the government down, that serves their purposes. It doesn't serve most Democrats' purposes. And I think they become the successful attackers of government. Democrats are the defenders of bad government. And that just leaves everybody at home feeling a little bit sick to their stomach. I want to put a pin on that because I think it's an interesting question how that has worked out for them right now. I think you're seeing a party that has not had a very high opinion of governing, realize that it maybe is harder than they they thought, and they back themselves into a corner. But I want to go back to something you said about big things versus small things. My read of politics, my observation of politics, is that there are different rules for big and small things. That it's almost like physics where you have like quantum mechanics and special relativity. And... The small things, and I don't mean to say they're necessarily small, but the less public things, maybe we'll call them, things like FDA bills and, and, and that kind of thing, there's still the opportunity for bipartisanship there. There's still the opportunity for traditional processes there. Interestingly, the, the No Child Left Behind Reauthorization Act, the, the, I've always Elementary forget the name of it. Secretary School Act, or, yeah. That's a big thing that somehow never became a public thing. Right. And so it was able to go forward. But when things become public things, healthcare, immigration, a big infrastructure bill. I've covered every one of those in the last, you know, 10-ish years. 
And at the beginning of every single one, I'm in the room with policy experts on both sides who can come up with things they both like better than the status quo. And so when the, the question is a sort of, is there a better policy, people can come to an agreement. But if it's a big thing, it seems to me the question by the end is always who should win the next election. And I don't mean that in a narrow way. I just mean that if Donald Trump did get a huge win on healthcare, even putting aside the substantive ideological content of the bills, if Barack Obama was able to walk out with Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan and Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi and say, look at this great bill and everybody agreed, Democrats would get reelected. They would win more seats. If everybody said Obama did fix Washington, if Republicans let him fix Washington, they would lose their jobs. That is a really bad incentive yeah. for compromise. Right. Right. I do think the most animating impulse for people here is their reelection. So just to agree with what you're saying, what it, but it's come to dominate everything to a degree that I think is unsatisfying to the American people and unsatisfying to most members of Congress. So we have to just stop it. If I had been advising Donald Trump, which I wasn't, but if I, somebody asked me, what should he do when he gets here? What I would have said to him is you should write an infrastructure bill. That's a big bill pass it through the House of Representatives without a single vote from the Freedom Caucus, get a big bipartisan vote, then bring it over to the Senate, pass it with a big bipartisan vote, and then you could go to the Rose Garden and do what Donald Trump yearns to do, which is be able to stand there and say, look, I was able to get something done that Barack Obama could never get done. He could have done it, but he allowed, once again, a minority of the minority to control the process. I don't think that is inevitable that we do that. I think you're right that in the end, We've caved in over and over again to the next election. But at a certain point, we have to stand up and say, what do we need to do for the future of this country? And I think that time is now. It's past time. It's past time. I want to pull back to this question of the underlying incentives of how this place works. Yeah. I think something Mitch McConnell in the Obama years understood very clearly is that there's something slightly strangely illogical about bipartisanship. It is a minority giving the majority. So now you get something substantively, right? You get to be on the bill. You get your amendments considered. I mean, you maybe even get your name on it. But in some basic way, if the public looks and sees Washington working, they see bills getting passed. They see bipartisan majorities on those bills. That is a good thing for the majority to go with in the next election and, and, and tough on the minority. And for a long time, when we didn't have highly competitive, particularly House elections, that seemed to work out okay. One thing that does seem hard, even when you have people of good faith here, is that the way this place works is you're asking the majority at any given moment is asking for cooperation from the minority. And that cooperation endangers a minority's job. It means a minority maybe could not take back the majority. How do you overcome that? How do you overcome when people are right that to work together is to consign yourself to continuing to be out of power. I, I don't, in the end, the people that will decide these questions are the American people in their in elections. And I, and I would never, here's what I would argue about that, Ezra. I would never have, having said for years that Washington's priorities were out of sync with America's priorities, which I believe, at least in the Senate, I would never have recommended or imagined or predicted that Donald Trump would be the remedy for that. But I understand it. And I think what that would partly was, was the public saying, we're just sick and tired of all of this. We're sick and tired of it. So we're going to put a reality TV star in charge. What I would hope is that people will say, we're sick and tired of hearing people that can't work together, who say they're standing on principle when they're not particularly principled, who can't find a, a legitimate compromise that's not 
about meeting in the middle. It's not about moderation, which is splitting the difference between two parties, bad or obsolete ideas. It's about having some imagination about what the future is going to look like and then legislating in that direction. And until we can set a standard of that, that was the reason, one of the reasons I wanted to do the immigration bill. I mean, the substantive reason was to help fix immigration. The Machiavellian reason was that I thought if we could do it on something as hard as that, that other people might say, you know what, I can do, we can do that on criminal justice reform. We can do that on uh, infrastructure. Unfortunately, we never got the chance, because, not because the Senate didn't do it, but because the House didn't do it. So I agree with you that the equities run in the other direction, but I also believe that the, the American people have had it, certainly people in Colorado have had it with people that are coming back and, and saying, I accomplished nothing. I stopped them from doing this. I blame them for, you know, who they are. And instead, would like to see us give up a little bit of our shot, maybe, to win the next election uh, in order to legislate on behalf of the American people. One of the the tensions in this seems to me that to be that there is one way of looking at politics where what you want is bipartisanship, what you want is compromise, what you want is to see the stakeholders around the table, you know, working on things together. And another where what you want is purity. And, and Americans, to some degree, it feels to me, flip a little bit between yeah. these two these two ideas. So to go back to your gloss on, on Trump and why he got elected, I sometimes think about Obama and Trump as offering a kind of continuum. Obama <laughs> comes in and says, you're tired of things being so angry, so divisive, so partisan. I'm going to bring people together. It's not going to feel like this anymore. That doesn't quite work out. And as people get disappointed in that, they move from thinking, eh, all these people are fighting and they're in bad faith to saying they're all corrupt. Like something is much more seriously wrong here. And, and Trump comes in and says, look, I'm rich. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can cow me. Nobody can back me down. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one who can fix it because I'm the only one who's not part of it. That sense that the whole place is corrupt, that it's controlled by money, that it's controlled by special interests, that seems like a very, very, very big impediment to even the sort of politics that you're talking about more ideally because people stop trusting the outcomes. So I guess that's a, a place I want to take this. Like, well, first, so, are they right? Is yeah, it corrupt in it that way? It is corrupt. It is, and I want to describe what I mean by that. I still believe that's not an excuse for trying to figure out how to make this work. One of the things that I worried about in the last presidential campaign was what I would consider anyway, the utter lack of patriotism in either either campaign and any definition about our politics as part of that patriotism. I mean, I strongly believe, I could be wrong, but my reading of what the founders were trying to do was when they created the Constitution was to create a mechanism for dispute resolution. That's what they were trying to do. We were living in a democracy. We were a Republican form of government that never existed anywhere but in their imagination, really. And their assumption was that people would disagree. So this point about purity that you talked about, some people would be pure on one issue and other people would be pure on another issue. We needed a mechanism to resolve our disputes. That's what the Senate's supposed to be about, I think. And people come here and they they assert purity. It was a question about how pure they really are. But at a certain point, you got to get the work done. I think the founders saw that. And in our time, we're not seeing that. There is not a moment where people say, let's put the public interest above our party's interest. Let's put the public interest against our own, uh, above our own political interest. There hasn't been. I hope there will be. Can I mention, talk about the corruption point? Because I think this was the fundamental flaw in, in the Supreme Court's decision, Citizens United, where 
they imagined a world of quid pro quo corruption. I, by the way, on this point, I used to say in Colorado that reading the majority opinion in Citizens United was like reading a seventh grader's government paper, except I then have concluded that's insulting to seventh graders, so I don't say it anymore. But it's so childish. And on corruption, they imagine a world of quid pro quo corruption. Ezra Klein gives Michael Bennett $5,000, and I go write a bill for Ezra Klein. And they said, well, that's corruption, so we punish that. The concern must be with the appearance of corruption, not actually corruption. And should we erode the First Amendment right of billionaires to give money to the system just because of the appearance that I will go do something because you give me money? They totally missed it. This has nothing to do with the appearance of corruption. It's actual corruption, but it's a corruption of inaction, not a corruption of action. It's a corruption that says, I'm not going to introduce that bill or have that debate or go on the floor and talk about climate change, just pick that, for fear that if I do in the next election, some billionaire is going to drop $30 million in my race and nobody's going to know that I was ever here and that will be the end of me. So it's the opposite of how they understood it, but I do think it's the source of the inability of this place to actually get anything done. It's a fear of action, a corruption of inaction that we're dealing with. And it's completely invisible. The American people know something's wrong, but it's not like you can go and find a guy who's hid the cash in his icebox in Louisiana. It's the it's that $30 million that's coming in the ne next election that's keeping people from doing it. Do you feel that pressure? Sure. Everybody here does. I hear this complaint a lot, right? There's a lot of fear that a super PAC that you've never heard of before that you can't track back is going to come dump $30 million. What's weird about that complaint is Congress could just change it. We should. They could just well, but make uh, what's, I'll tell you explosive. what's even weirder than that is when you read the Supreme Court's opinion, Citizens United, they actually presume in the opinion that Congress will change it. They say at some point, eight of nine justices, Thomas being the exception, say that disclosure is constitutional. And their presumption is that we're going to disclose, and they obviously never met Mitch McConnell. Who and used they to say sunlight is the best Right, but not for the last 30 years. Right. Because his point of view since then has been, Katie, bar the door. Let's just have unlimited amounts of money. And I am afraid that's where this is headed. The Supreme Court said, they said, you know, they had equated money as to speech in Buckley against Faleo, an earlier decision. And in this decision, they said, in a democracy, you can never have enough speech. So the corollary to that is, in a democracy, you can never have enough money, which is what we've gotten as a result of Citizens United. I have yet to meet a person in Colorado who has said to me, Michael, the problem with our politics is there's not enough money in it. But that is the fundamental thesis of Citizens United. And we should change it, but the majority leader will never, ever change it. And I hope that states can act in some in some civil disobedience to get us started down this path. What do you mean by that? Just I, I hope that states and local communities will pass disclosure laws, will pass limitations, will will have a fight with the FCC about who has the jurisdiction to, to decide, uh, and this may be a losing fight, but worth having, who has the jurisdiction to decide whether somebody has to put their name on a television ad when it runs in, in our state. Some people don't realize how damaging this has been because they don't live in a battleground state. But if you live in a state like Colorado and your television is basically taken over by campaign ads for 18 months before an election, you know, people want their TVs back. 
you're going to say that they shouldn't be watching now, that's TV. a campaign slogan yeah. they could win they, an election right <laughs> let me have my tv back so let me watch my broncos game without this stuff so but here here's the question on the the broader issue is there a way to restore public trust in the process without really like root and branch reform of a kind that I don't think even disclosure comes anywhere near. I have to believe the answer is yes. I agree with you, by the way. I think disclosure is essential, but not, I I think we should have limits. I don't think people should be able to write billion dollar checks to super PACs. I think on a first amendment basis alone, they shouldn't be able to do that because there's obviously, there's an equivalence that's lost for people that don't have those kinds of resources. It will be hard to do it, but not impossible to do it. We need the public and politicians both to agree that it's pretty easy to show up on the floor of the Senate and repeat what you heard on Fox or MSNBC the night before. The harder part is coming and saying something new and saying something that's bipartisan and being able to establish the space here to be able to do that work. And is it possible? My best example, we've referred to it already, is that immigration bill where we, I mean, the, the difference between that bill and some other things that I've worked on is it did have the tacit support of leadership. So neither Harry Reid nor Mitch McConnell was saying, do not work on that bill. They were saying, maybe there's something there. And from the point of view of the Republicans that were there, and I, I believe in my time here, they set the standard for legislative leadership. So that was, again, for listeners, John McCain, Jeff Flake, Marco Rubio, and Lindsey Graham, who sat in that room for seven months knowing exactly what the base of their party would say about them being there, but believing that it was the right thing to do for the country and the right thing to do for their party. They weren't being stupid, but they could never imagine Trump, parenthetically. But they thought their party had to get well on immigration for them to make progress and capture the presidency. That turned out not to be true, but they believed it. And the process led to a bill that I think was among the best pieces of legislation we've considered in the last eight years. So then let me, that bill is a good, raises a good and important question, I think, on money, though. One question I struggle with is that if money drove politics to the extent that sometimes I feel it does, but certainly that many people believe it does, the immigration bill had money behind it. I mean, that had the AFL-CIO behind Mm -hmm. it. It had the Chamber of Commerce behind it. It had really all the big money groups behind it. Um, infrastructure bills have had a lot of money behind them. Um, there again, you would have the AFL-CIO and the chamber on the same bill. You would not have had this kind of healthcare bill. That's not where the healthcare industry or or even the big the other big players were. You would not have things like debt ceiling uh, crises, right? Money does not want debt ceiling crises. Mm. There are a lot of problems money can create. And, and then similarly, that's Donald Trump. That's Donald Trump wouldn't, I mean, it was Jeb Bush with the super PAC money, not Donald Trump. There is a feeling mm. that people have And the feeling even people in the system have that money is driving everything. And then there are these outcomes where it doesn't seem able to buy the day quite often. So I think this is also, I hadn't thought about this until you raised it, but, and I may get this wrong, but this is a fascinating point. So the way I've thought about this in my own mind is I long for the day, I long for the day that capitalists were in charge of the Republican Party in Washington. And to that extent, what I mean is some money who are people that, for example, don't want the debt ceiling to create, you know, the lack of a debt ceiling being raised to crater our economy and who could say, 
I'm going to withhold from you my $5,000 contribution or my $2,500 contribution if you don't do the right thing on the debt ceiling. Those folks, who I think of as traditional Republican donors, have lost complete control of the Republican Party to ideologues, complete control. And to that extent, money doesn't have an influence. But to the extent that people that are willing to contribute to super PACs, which are not necessarily those people that are saying, I'm going to withhold a $5,000 check or our investment bank is not going to have a fundraiser for you next time. Those aren't people who write checks to super PACs. And the people that do write checks to super PACs in general are far more aligned with the ideologues than the more traditional donors that you're talking about. I've never thought about it that way, but I do think that is the distinction. There's another piece of this, which I think is interesting, which is that there's a lot of evidence that small donors are very, very, very ideological. So sometimes when people think about what would be a better system, they think, okay, what if we got the big organized corporate money out and we moved all the way to small donors? But the people who are really good at raising money from small donors tend to be the highly ideological members of, of the two parties. So I'm, I'm curious how constraining you feel that is, how constraining the fact that, um, this is reaching back for an old example, but when Joe Wilson yells, you lie, that's a great fundraising email. There seems to be a pull there, even within a more pure form of fundraising to make a lot of controversy, to be somebody who this is, is exciting, but is not, not sort of a, like a compromised politician is not going to raise money this, from those groups. That's absolutely true. And it's absolutely, you're, you're right. And it's the other side of the coin. I mean, it's the other side of the corruption coin. I'm not saying it's corrupt in the same way, but I will say that, yeah, that the slogans animate lower dollar fundraising in a way that compromise with Richard Burr does not. And I often think to myself, I'm not that great a politician because it is hard to, to be able to get people's attention on solutions. I think people want solutions, but in terms of who's willing to write a $5 check or a $10 check, it's often people that have the strongest kind of partisan feelings in the debate. And to that, I would say that whatever the system is that you or I would ideally devise, I mean, ideally it'd be one where there was no money in politics, but if you're going to have some, I think having a mix and a range of people, the ability for people to contribute a dollar or $2,000 Five thousand dollars, that's probably not the end of the world. But when people can write a ten million dollar check, that is probably the end of the world. Or threaten one. I mean, for people that don't believe me, I had a colleague who went home uh during the debate over Merrick Garland and who was President Obama's nominee for the Supreme Court, and say that the Senate should do its job and that we should vote on Merrick Garland and that he should come home and defend his vote, which would have been against Merrick Garland. The next day the Koch brothers organization came out and said, we're going to spend, it was at least $10 million in a primary against you. If that's your position, the next day he changed. So that's what I mean by the corruption of inaction. How much of that is there that Senator X has position? Y? here's quietly the position. Y will get him a $20 million dump. And then Senator X no longer holds position. Y. how much, it's I guess the it, only thing that explains to me why, and I, again, it's the only thing that explains to me why there's not a single Republican member of the Senate who purports to believe that climate change is real or that humankind is contributing to it. I've thought about it long and hard. I've read public opinion polls in my own state where every year that goes by, more and more people, including a majority of Republicans, believe that climate change is real. Everybody I know who's 
in a position of influence in the state of Colorado, whether a Democrat or Republican in general, believes the climate change is real. Yet there's not a single Republican who sees it in their interest, their self-interest, to be say nothing of the planet's interest, to say, I believe it's real. And I think that's the threat that people are facing. Here. You, you have good relationships. You're, you're known for having good relationships with your Republican colleagues. Do you ask them that? I have asked them that. I have asked them that. Yeah. Have you gotten an answer that you found persuasive? No, no, no. And I actually, the reason I asked them was that I, some folks, some folks who are strong environmentalists in Colorado asked me to have some conversations with them last year on this very question, and I did. People in private will say they believe climate change is real. They won't say why they're not saying that publicly. One of the things that I wonder about with just human beings in general is cynicism is a hard emotion to hold. Feeling like you are saying one thing, but you believe another. Not impossible, not that nobody does it. But how much of what we see is that kind of cynicism, that kind of, I believe climate change is real and it's a threat, but I'm not going to say so because the coke scare me. Versus how much of it is motivated reasoning, which is, you know, I think climate change might be real, might be a threat, probably is. But, you know, now that I see all the political incentives arrayed against me, some of these other arguments are starting to sound pretty persuasive. You know, maybe, I mean, look, there's doubt about all science. Shouldn't we just have the conversation? I think we are at a point where our political process is exhausting the American people with the kind of cynicism that you're just talking about. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons Donald Trump was elected, is that people said to themselves, at least he says what he believes, or even if he, if they didn't believe some people that he actually believed what he was saying, at least it wasn't the conventional script. And, and what we have got to do is provide people an alternative to that that, that is um, that's sincere and that reflects what you actually believe. And I think it happens all the time here, to a degree that I've never seen. You said, let's talk about human beings. In any other human endeavor that I have ever encountered, and there's been a lot of them, I have never seen people as willing to say one thing and believe another as in this place. Jeff Sessions was a classic example of that when he was in the Senate on immigration. He knew better about a lot of the things that he was saying, but he would go down the floor and just say it. There are others that will do that as well. I mean, how else could you possibly sustain the health care bill as long as they did? The bill that did exactly the opposite of what they said that it would do. They know better, most people. So to me, the, the health care bill was a very, it was a crazy-making thing to cover. There, there are things where you can argue, you can shade, you can say, oh, I meant it this way. But in some ways, I thought the the process complaints versus a process they chose was, I don't know how to cover some of these folks in the future. Like, I, I spent so much time after Obamacare hearing Republicans tell me about how, Senate Republicans, how terrible the process was or wasn't enough debate. They rushed it through. How could they, how could Democrats have passed an unpopular bill over the disagreements of the public? Um, why didn't they use regular order? And then every Republican signed on to a process with no hearings, with much less time for a much less popular bill. And of 51, 48 voted for some final product within it. How, after that, do you believe any of the signals that your Republican friends say? How do you listen to Mitch McConnell gave this whole speech about regular order before he took over and then did this? I quoted him on the floor when, last week. He said that if a bill went through with just 
one party's votes and none of the others, and it was written in the majority leader's office in secret, that it might be the case that the American people don't actually support the bill and therefore we should set it aside, which is, of course, what just happened here. I really worry. I mean, things are much worse today in many ways than when I first got here, which was eight years ago. And I am really worried, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, but, and you're less worried about some of it than I am, but I really am worried about the devolution of rules and customs and things that make political life somewhat predictable. And we've eased into this world of whatever I'm going to do is whatever I can get away with. There are no norms left anymore. If you can hold up Merrick Garland for a year, do it. If you can write a, a, a bill and not actually put it on the floor of the Senate, turns out you can't do this for the moment, but at 10 o'clock at night, the night we're actually voting, do it. That's not the way this place should operate. We should agree on some set of rules that that cabin the ability of both parties to be able to go off and do what they want. Having said that, I just have to say another thing. This, there is not an equivalence between the Obamacare process and this process. No. I mean, the Affordable Care Act had something like a year and a half of process, countless committee hearings, over 150 Republican amendments were adopted in the committee process. I did 60 town halls in Colorado, many of them in t tiny towns, in places where people hated the Affordable Care Act at the time. It would have been like going to Boulder today and defending the Republicans' bill. That's what I was doing in 2010 when people were yelling at me, read the bill, read the bill. There was none of that this time. And it is, it drives me nuts because the same critics of the process the last time are the ones that invented an even more terrible process this time. So back to the point you were just making about norms and rules and institutions. This is somewhere where I have complicated thoughts, as you've mentioned, you and I have talked about them before, but but at its core, it seems to me, the Senate is an institution that has rules and norms that we are seeing on a daily basis now are built for another era in politics. That you saw, I think, in the Obama era, that it is norms of cooperation that are built for an era when cooperation is something that politically the minority is willing to offer. I think we're seeing in this era that there are, uh, and we saw it in the Obama era too, that there are just norms about whether or not things get voted on, how forward, how much delay the minority can do. The Democrats have been doing a lot of delay on nominations of late. Um, and it sometimes feels to me that when people, it's not like what I want to see is all the rules taken away. It seems to me that folks need to sit down and ask, what are we really dealing with here? And like, what kinds of behavior do we want to incentivize? Because just having rules that get broken or that lead to nothing happening, it's not great either. Well, it also, it also, I think, in, it's a real tension. And, and it used to be said around here that, um, that the problem was, there was a problem of reciprocity. And um, you would do one, you would behave, the Democrats would behave badly, and then the Republicans would behave badly. And then the Democrats would behave badly in retribution for what the Republicans had done. Now there's sort of a presumptive payback where you say, I'm going to do it to you because I know if you're in power, you're going to do it yes, to us. Yes, this is weird. And that's a change. So now it's a race to the bottom of norms or lack of norms that is anticipatory 
it's our own version of invading Iraq on the theory that they're going to use weapons of mass destruction. That's what's happening here. And that means it's become no holds barred. And you're, the tension is real. So I, I do believe, look, there are people that have been, and I think, again, this is part of the genius of the framers. May, they may be obsolete in some ways, but man, they, they were pretty smart. And there are some people that come here who represent dark blue states, and there's some people who represent dark red states, and they're going to be the ones that are here to say, my way or the highway, often. Then there are people that come from a state like Colorado, third Democratic, a third Republican, and a third Independent. You can't successfully represent that state with a my way or the highway view of the world. And it's here that I then intersect with people who do see it that way or who just are more who feel like they want to be more responsive to social media, for instance, than I might feel the d desire to do. And here we intersect and say, okay, here's our dispute mechanism that e the founders either set up or generations of prior senators set up. And here's how we're going to use this to resolve the disputes. And we're going to go home and say, I didn't get the last 20% of what I wanted or what we wanted, but I got 80% of it. And I had to compromise with this one or that one in order to get the bill done. What we've gotten to at this point is we'd rather see people say, and this was the Jim DeMint view of the world. We'd rather see people say, I am, I am 100% loyal to my position and, and not produce anything. And I don't think that's, at least I don't think that's how most people who are living their lives outside of politics would like people that are engaged in politics to approach the work. Most people, I hate to say this, aren't listening to political reporters or to politicians. That's crazy. It is crazy, but true. Most people are trying to work and go to school and do something better for their community and for their family. And they like to think that the people that are lucky enough to have the jobs you described earlier in the, this discussion are having a more considered view about things than somebody who's posting something on the internet. Which, by the way, this goes to this whole discussion about your job, not my job which you may not want to talk about, but I am fascinated by, which is the movement away in the democracy from reliance on edited content, on curated content, to reliance on stuff people are posting on the internet. And now we're at the point where the president of the United States on almost a daily basis goes out of his way to denigrate edited content. None of this stuff, the money, the rules, the any of it, I think all that pales in comparison the ability of there being a norm about the importance of curated content in people making decisions in this democracy. Another way of saying that in shorthand, and this is going to get me in trouble with a lot of people who are going to say I'm a Luddite, but I probably already said enough to get that reputation. If Walter Cronkite's reading us the news at night, there's no way Donald Trump survives the Republican primary, much less wins a general election. Would never have happened. He would have been a marginal political figure, I think. Why do you think that's happened then? I think it's happened because we have had a technological revolution in this country that has many, many, many positive attributes. But one of those is not substituting social media for good judgment. And I'm not saying that social media can't someday provide it. In fact, I hope that it will, because otherwise I think we are doomed. I don't see a way out of this race to the bottom. 
unless we can find a way to organize on social media for productive purposes. What do we want the country to look like 50 years from now? What do we feel about the fact that we're not even maintaining the roads and bridges our grandparents built for us while the Chinese are building trains all over Asia? What do we think about all that? Instead of just trying to govern between tweets and commercial breaks on the cable television at night, which is kind of where we are today. You know, what what seems to me to be happening in that space, and it's been happening for a long time, right? It's not just a social media age thing, is that media, what you might call nonpartisan or what, what my colleague Dave Roberts calls transpartisan media, something like the New York Times, has been absorbed into tribalism. Mm-hmm. And the thing that Trump in particular and the people around him, but to some degree the Republican Party for a longer time than that, has been trying to do is not to discredit something like the New York Times factually. Even, even calling it fake news, it's, it's almost not there for you to believe that. It's to say what side it's on. It's to make it one side of a fight and not the side you're on. And something that Trump always struck me as being able to do was make his stance against media a culture war issue. Mm-hmm. That media right. were elites, they were right. cosmopolitan, they're right. in big cities, right. it's blue. Right. And that was very effective and seems to me to be something that, while a lot of Republican senators read, almost all of them, I think, read the Times, the Post, et cetera, they very much engage in that. I think there's a few, the, the one place I'm differing with you a bit here is, I don't think the issue here is edited content versus not edited content. Um, we put a lot of effort into editing at Vox, like I, I appreciate that. but. There's always been the capability to believe things that are wrong. And honestly, the media at times can, within its own editing, do a very bad job telling but the truth, like on climate change, like on the Iraq war. But what has changed, it seems to me, or has accelerated is the idea that if you are Red Tribe, you are supposed to believe Fox News and Breitbart and X and not these other things. And almost irrespective of the truth, if you just begin to split the informational universes that sharply you end up in a place that becomes pretty dangerous pretty quickly. Well, so, I, so I'm so i going to disagree with you about the editor versus not because... Well, it's because your brother's an editor. Well, it's not, yeah. <laughs> but And uh, with apologies to him because he can represent himself on this stuff. But if I think about when I was superintendent of the Denver Public Schools, that was not... And so just taking partisanship out of it, taking Washington out of it. Think about when I was superintendent... There were then two daily newspapers in Denver. The Rocky Mountain News, which tragically is no longer there, was run by a guy named John Temple, and the Denver Post, which was run by, owned by Dean Singleton. On a daily basis, those papers had to keep each other honest about what they were reporting. And the editors of those papers had to make sure the reporters were doing the jobs they, they were sent to do. And in the case of what we were working on in the school district, which was extremely controversial in a lot of ways— and different from what had happened before. It required them to approach their journalism in a different way as well. I shudder to think what it would be like to work in that job in a one newspaper town. So that's one reason why I think that edited stuff is important. Having said that, I agree with you about the partisan stuff, but I think it's not an actual reflection of what the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal is trying to do. I read the Wall Street Journal yesterday cover to cover, and I won't speak about their editorial page because for obvious reasons, but their newspaper, I didn't have any trouble reading what they were saying about Venezuela or about 
the health care bill or I had no trouble believing what they were trying to say was true, which is not also the same as saying journalists are infallible. I would never say that either. That's not my point. My point is that the collapse of journalism, of the of conventional journalism, I think has contributed to a world where facts are not as, as important they are informing decision-making around political decisions, either for the public or for politicians, and has conspired with these other things to create a real test of our democratic institutions. Look, this is all easy if you're in an autocracy someplace and you can just point in the direction that you want to go. That's not the way our system works, and it, nor should it work that way. But if it's not going to work that way, we have to step up in the 21st century. I quite agree, not with 19th century norms or 18th century norms, but in the 21st century and say, how are we going to better manage this democracy? And I think incumbent on people in jobs like mine is to be willing to go home and get kicked in the teeth every now and then by the people that are your strongest allies because you have a disagreement on the facts. There's too little of that that happens now. And, and, and my final point on that would be, it's not for me, it's, it, it's one thing for Democrats to criticize Republicans and Republicans to criticize Democrats, but it's quite another thing for a Democrat to be willing to go home and say, on this point, I disagree with my party. On this point, as a Republican, I disagree with my party, and I disagree with what the president's saying about this or that. We need more of that. We're not having that. What is the last time in this Senate you saw something you thought, that worked? That was a functional process. And, and what, what were the qualities that it had? The uh, two examples. One was the immigration bill. I won't bore you with that except to say that it was eight months of in private and then a whole committee process through the Judiciary Committee with hundreds of amendments or at least more than 100 amendments. But adopt, then was stopped from adopt, getting a House vote. It was. But in here, it worked. Here, it worked. On the... Uh, the other example I'd use would be the Elementary and Secondary School Act, which we mentioned, where Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray, who run that committee, ran a very measured process that engaged everybody on the committee. At one point, it didn't end up this way, but at one point, they they got a uni, unanimous vote out of that committee on that bill, including Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders. Why do you think those processes worked? If you were trying to take lessons from them? My lesson would be include people, don't exclude people, and be willing to consider people's ideas. And then when you have a disagreement, put it to a vote. Put it to a vote in the committee and allow people to say, I'm up or I'm for it or against it. So, and that's, that's Lamar Alexander's view of the world is, and I don't want to speak for him, but I think he'd be okay with this, was... I am going to reach consensus, and where consensus diverges, we have a mechanism for dealing with that, which is having a vote. Now, for that to work, you have to be willing to take hard votes, and you have to be willing to take votes on a piece of legislation that may not go anywhere. And that has become something that this place avoids like the plague. Well, that's something I've heard before, that one that one reason people like the leadership-driven process, although I don't think it quite worked this way in healthcare, where people ended up taking a lot of hard votes Terrible. on a bill that went nowhere. Terrible. But is but it, it, for the most part, it protects them from taking hard votes. They don't take no. votes on amendments that'll make them look bad. They don't take votes on bills that they think will make them look right. bad. They just, right. they, it's a pretty structured The easiest thing process. in the world here is to avoid a vote and, to the point we were making earlier, fundraise often. So my favorite example of all, and I hesitate to bring it up because it's just such a point of personal misery, was the Keystone Pipeline, which was an issue that I think 
neither party ever wanted to have go away because it was an incredible fundraising vehicle for the Democratic Party, an incredible fundraising vehicle for the Republican Party. And in my view, and and again, I've been beaten to death on this, but in my view, a real distraction from the fundamental climate issues that we should have been discussing. But there was everybody ran to it like moss to a flame. It was incredible. So the Lamar Alexander Patty Murray committee that you just talked about that ran no yeah. child the no child left behind update so successfully, health education labor pensions. If healthcare had been done in a normal process, that committee would have had a big piece of it. Do you think that in this Senate in this era something could have come out of it? Yes, I do. I do. The difficulty comes when people, whether it's senators or people on the internet, I mean, it could, or anybody in between, treats as talismanic human creations like the healthcare bill or Dodd-Frank, for instance. I was here for both of those things. I, I think that there are good things about both of them. I voted for both of them. There are improvements that can be made to them. And what sometimes happens around here is somebody says, Do you can't t- if you touch a hide on the, you know, a hair on the hide of that bill, you're somehow not progressive. I disagree with that. I think there are plenty of things that need to be fixed. So that's part of what gets in the way of ordinary process. The other thing in the case of healthcare was the Republicans had lied so much for so long to their base about what the Affordable Care Act actually did, what the origins of it were, and what corrections to it might be, that they were left in a position where they had no starting point on legislation, that anything would be a capitulation to the Bolshevik socialist takeover of the United States of America by the people that voted for the Affordable Care Act. That, in that precise example, I think would have made it very hard for us to make progress. Now that the Republicans have been shoved a stake through themselves on this, I do think we have an opportunity to sit in a bipartisan way in that committee in particular and start legislating. That's a good bridge back to something that we began talking about with the Republican Party quite a bit ago, which is they spent a long time in a stance of not just opposition to the Obama administration, but opposition to basic formats of government, basic modes of governance, opposition to a lot of ideas within the Affordable Care Act that they had once supported, uh, a position on the Affordable Care Act that I think ended up biting them when they made it sound so terrible, yet they couldn't come up with a bill that seemed to cover more people for less money. In recent weeks, Ross Douthat at the New York Times, Jeff Flake and this Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona, you've begun to hear Republicans saying, we did not build a party that can govern. We built a party that could win. We did not build a party that can govern. Is that why? Is that part of their problem? Or is this just about Trump and disorganization and chaos? I don't think it is just about Trump. I mean, presumptuous of me to say, because I'm I'm not a Republican, but I do represent a lot of Republicans. As I said, my state is the third Republican. I think that national Republicans have been coloring so far outside the lines of what is conventional American political thought, including conventional Republican political thought, that it has made it impossible for them. It has made it impossible for them to govern. And I don't think it's just about Trump. And if we can't find a way to overcome it, it's going to be very hard for us to pass things like an infrastructure bill around here, which used to be a fairly common piece of work. But if you don't believe the federal government should be building roads or helping fund roads, 
out of your sense of what the founding fathers did, it's going to be very hard for us to have a, a conversation about that. I wanted to talk about House of Cards for a couple minutes before we're wrapping this up. Because you talked about... I haven't about, watched the last season, so... Uh, nor have I. Okay. But you talked about the way it gets some level of sociopathy right. The thing that always strikes me about it is how comforting a vision of politics it is in some weird way. Now, it's a comforting vision of politics yoked to pretty evil characters. It's a vision of politics in which people are highly competent, which they're highly planned, in which their plans, these sort of like four, five, six, seven, 12-step strategies end up playing out. And the thing that has struck me so much since becoming a reporter in Washington is how unplanned everything is, how much people are always scrambling, how poor their information is, how reactive they are. I remember when I was 22 working here and beginning to just, you know, interview members of Congress and senators and having them ask me what I was hearing. And at first I thought they were being polite and I realized, no, they, they just are completely out of their own information loops. I assumed they knew everything, but in fact, they knew very little. And you see that now today. That feels to me like a bigger part of this than we give it credit for. It really does not feel to me like people know what they're doing and have a strategy for it that everybody is just trying to keep up and that it's a much less planned out process than say the way you would run a business or the way you might run a school system. There's just much more chaos and scrambling than people give it you credit for here. You wouldn't run anything like this. You really wouldn't. I mean, think about a business, certainly you wouldn't. I think about the city and county of Denver where I once worked before I was superintendent. And we have had four mayors in a row, very, each one very different than, than the last, but each highly competent and each who has put an important mark on that city, so much so that we're now, we have as a state, the lowest unemployment rate in the country. We have in Denver, a light rail system built over the geography, the size of the state of Connecticut. We've got transit-oriented development that we would never have imagined 20 years ago. And that's the result of a bunch of people coming together to work together in ways that actually enhanced the private sector's ability to do what they needed to do because they were able to plan and, and, and be part of that public vision. That's the opposite of how anything gets done around here. And look at the health care bill. There is not a person in the Senate that believes that Donald Trump knew or cared what was in that bill. Not a person. So you think about your example from House of Cards. They may not have cared exactly what was going to be in the bill, but they they would have known that you had to move from A to B to C to D and who you were going to influence along the way. It may be a particularly egregious example, and I will accept that because Donald Trump is a particularly egregious character in all of this. But the idea that the president of the United States before repealing something of that consequence would not know what was in it or care what was in it or wonder whether it was in any way responsive to the arguments he had made on the campaign trail is staggering. To be fair, nobody knew healthcare could be this complicated. Yeah, I know. I read that somewhere. Amazing. I'm going to sound like I'm holier than thou. I'll just say out of the box, my biggest mistake being here was voting to change the rules when Harry Reid changed the rules. On and the I, filibuster. On the filibuster. Okay, so I'm going to take my medicine. That was my biggest mistake. But I do think we have become too tolerant of a set of behaviors here that we would not accept for the people that work in local government, county government, in the business down the street. Donald Trump, if he went, Donald Trump went with a resume in hand up and down 17th Street, which is our 
you know, equivalent of Wall Street in Denver, Colorado, looking for a job at a bank or an insurance company. There's not a single person that would hire him, not a single person. And yet he's president. There are people we send back to Washington every year who have been here for 30 years and can't say one thing they've gotten done and, and, and say it honestly. We shouldn't be sending those people back here. And we should be accepting, I think, self-interested to say it, the possibility that from time to time there are going to be disagreements between people we send here and and their own party. But isn't it's there a way? It's going to have isn't to there work. a way though that the Trump is? I think on healthcare in particular, Trump, who you're right, knew nothing about it, didn't bother to learn anything about it. But he's also a bit of the easy example because I, one of the things that surprised me about how this healthcare process went is the degree to which, in a less public, less offensive, less Trumpian way, that was true for the overwhelming majority of Republican senators. They, I mean, yeah. there was a move to vote to go to debate on the bill before they knew what was in the bill. It was literally not possible to know what was going on in the bill because nobody knew what the final bill was going to look like. And, you know, it ended up failing. Nor, nor had it been scored by the nor had it been scored. congressional budget. And yeah, it ended up failing by one vote. But through all of that, it seemed like there were 40 Republican votes for legislation that I don't know a single Republican who thought that legislation was well-crafted or thoughtfully crafted or had been properly vetted. I don't know a single Republican who thought that if we implemented it as it was, it would have made the system a lot better. And yet there were at least 40 votes that just never wavered. They were what, never in play. What puzzled me about that, even more than all of that, although I agree with that, all those observations about the process, what puzzled me even more about that was having done a bunch of meetings around the state in Republican areas, in rural areas, the content of the bill had nothing to do with what I was hearing. There was nobody saying to me, Michael, in, in, in rural Republican areas, nobody saying to me, please cut taxes for really wealthy people as part of making my health care bigger. There wasn't anybody with this opioid crisis happening. There wasn't anybody saying, please cut Medicaid by 25%. Yet that's, those were the bookends of the bill. And actually slammed in the middle of it was what Rand Paul referred to as Obamacare light. And I think he's exactly right about that. So, like, if you were actually trying to solve the problem of somebody in, for instance, Route County, Colorado, a rural part of my state, the problem they have, they earn too much money to, to get a, a, the subsidy, and yet we're requiring them to buy health insurance. I think a very legitimate criticism of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare light is going to make their life even more difficult. It was amazing. I mean, it, there was just no relationship between what the bill said and what people that were critics of the Affordable Care Act in my state were asking. How do you feel asking. your Republican colleagues, the ones you respect and work with, how do you feel they justified that to themselves? I, I think probably a combination of this was we have made a promise for seven years that we're going to repeal Obamacare. Let's set aside, well, if you were going to repeal Obamacare and you were going to put something better in its place, which became the Trump standard, you might have crafted something like that. Now, in fairness to them, to the Republicans, Trump changed the whole debate. So if, if, if the earlier critique of Obamacare was simply too much government or our health care, you could have a principled approach to the Affordable Care Act that was about withdrawing the federal government from health care, not necessarily about making the American people's health care better. Trump then said, hey, you're going to love this. It's going to be, we're going to cover as many people. It's going to be cheaper. It's going to be easier. So he introduced the idea that the Republicans had to deliver better health care for people, not just retreat from 
the playing field. And I think that's part of what went wrong. So I think it was the promise that they'd made to repeal it, combined with the the thought that, that this was the only chance uh, for them to do that. And I will bet weighing on their minds, because I can remember it, I think weighing on their minds was the idea that they didn't want the president to have a defeat. And none of those things are is responsive to what the American people want out of their healthcare system. I think we have the chance now to fix it. Are you involved in any bipartisan discussions on I that? Will, I certainly am going to be, yes. As soon as this podcast is over. As soon as this podcast is <laughs> over. No, I've had conversations with people already, and I will be. I mean, there are a lot of things I'd like to work on, not just healthcare, but I do think there are real pain points in our health. As I've said over and over again, whether and this gets lost in debate in D.C. as well, whether you're for the Affordable Care Act notionally or against it in Colorado— you're deeply dissatisfied with the way our healthcare system works for you and your family. And that's, um, I think that's on all of us to try to figure out how to Do you to think there's the possibility, given how little presidential leadership is being exerted over the what agenda, over about? the details of policies, that you're going to see more senators and groups of senators I, trying to push different I, issues? I do. Like I criminal do. justice reform I, is a good example. looked like it was going to happen. That, and so what I, so how do we build something out of the ashes here? Okay, we we both agree we have a system that's not working well. We'll have we'll stipulate to some agreement on the role of journalism and all of this money, gerrymandering, the the demands of the twenty first century. Somehow, and we and now Donald Trump is our president. Okay, I don't think there's a lot of downside from that. So how do we rebuild something from the ashes? And what I would say is. Let's take the example of the health care bill, which um, needs improvement. We now have a live example of how not to do it. And by the way, that's amazing, too, the fact that they couldn't get a majority. You talked about how hard it was to get or might have been to get 40 votes. But the fact that you're going to argue that you should repeal something for seven or eight years and then you, you write a bill so terrible that you can't get it passed is an amazing feat in of itself. But how do we build something out of the ashes? Let's rebuild trust by working on this stuff. And 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 not in a Pollyannish way, but in a way that is just our job. I mean, I and I think it couldn't be in better hands than Lamar Alexander's hands or Patty Murray's hands. They, that's where it should have been to begin with. All right, let me end on the question that, that we always do. What are three books you've read that you've liked that have influenced you that you'd recommend to the audience? I would, recent ones are... I won't remember the, all the authors' names, but Evicted, which won the Pulitzer Matthew Prize. Desmond, Matthew yeah. Desmond, which is just an incredible book about the difficulty poor people have keeping a house over their heads. And I had some sense of that when I was superintendent of schools, but the degree, the description of people living in Milwaukee that are just trying to keep a roof over their heads to say nothing of educating their kids, feeding their kids, I think that's, and I think it's an important book also because there was a report the other day that said that if um, if you earn the minimum wage in the United States, there are no counties in America you can afford to run a two-bedroom apartment without consuming more than 30% of your income. Twelve counties where you can run a one-bedroom apartment. That's hard. It makes it hard for people to get ahead. So Matthew tells an amazing story. One of my perennial favorites from now probably six or seven years ago is Catherine Boo's book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers, which I think is the finest piece of literature that I have ever read about poor people. It's about a it's slum an in Mumbai. Book. It's an amazing book. And she, um, the reporting on that, but when you think about the fact 
that the people she was talking to don't even speak Hindi, much less English. And it's an amazing book. And to me, the thing about it is Kate is, I mean, she's so clear-eyed about the people that she's writing about. It's not a, she's not sympathetic. She's not, she's not unsympathetic, but it's not, a, it, it is a clear-eyed view about the ability of human beings to strive to overcome adversity. And even though it's a very depressing book in a lot of ways, it does give you hope that in the end that there's enough human spirit that we're going to be okay. Another book that I recently read was Edward Luce's book about the retreat of Western liberalism. Oh, what do you think I, of that? I think it's an interesting book. I think that I think it's a well-written book, and I think that the um, his send-up, among other things, of Davos and kind of the Davos class and— the Democratic Party's lack of success in replacing the old Democratic Party with something that's actually compelling to people, to, among other people, the Trump voters. I think that was an interesting analysis. You and I talked about Sam Quinones's book about the heroin epidemic dreamland, actually not just the heroin epidemic, the opioid epidemic, prescription drugs and heroin, and how those have conspired um, in this country. Those are all good books. Senator Michael Bennett, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ezra. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Senator Bennett for, for taking the time, to all of you for listening. Thank you to my producers, Jillian Weinberger, Peter Leonard, Bert Pinkerton, to the nameless engineers here uh, at the Senate who do not want credit for helping us in this in this uh, interview, they, they, but they've been very kind. The Ezra Klein Show will be back next week. <laughs>